and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, actually now twice weekly podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller. Coming up on our 300th episode, can you believe almost six years of taping this podcast without missing an episode? I'm honored to still be clinging on to the host chair where Franklin Covey each week invites me to interview some of the biggest thought leaders in the industry, focused on people who have expertise on this topic of leadership a broad subject, right? Whether you are a leader in your organization, perhaps you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, or neither. You're retired, or you're just rich, or perhaps you are a stay-at-home parent, or you've done your duty on the corporate side, and now you're just trying to be a leader in the lives of your family and perhaps your own. We hope each week these conversations add great value to you. About four months ago, we decided to double down on our episodes and now release new episodes every Tuesday and Friday, so we hope you subscribe to the podcast and get the benefit of such great conversations from all of our guests. Today is a return guest to our podcast because I'm personally such a big fan of this uh, author. He's got a cult following like no one I know. His name is John Acuff. You know him as being an enormously in-demand keynote speaker, leadership coach, podcast host. He, of course, has written several books, including a book most of you probably recognize called soundtracks, a, a, a cult following amongst many of his followers. And John is now today releasing a new book called All It Takes is a Goal, the three-step plan to ditch regret and tap into your massive potential. John Acuff, welcome back to On Leadership. Thanks for having me again, Scott. I'm looking forward to it. So, John, you are like, I'm trying to think of like a pop indie band that sells out nightclubs. Hasn't yet made it to like SoFi Stadium, <laughs> but like sells out, like, give me one of those. Like, yeah, like the National, or the National. Let's say the National, that's who I'm looking Yes, at. that's the one you I probably was, haven't, that's you what probably I was haven't thinking heard of, of them. No. Somebody young on your staff can tell you who that is. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of was the National. Anyway, my point is, John, you have this remarkable following because a few months ago, I happened to catch you in the back of the Salt Lake Airport. You were walking in front of me, and I call out your name, and we shake hands, and I'm into, like, my first sentence, and all of a sudden, you are mobbed with people coming around you talking about it, and all of a sudden, I disappear into this abyss of fans, go to my gate, and I text John later, nice knowing you. If you've not read John Acuff's books, you need to start subscribing. John, uh, I'm glad you're back. Happy to support your work. Um, I follow you on social. I'm a big fan of your own thought leadership. And what, one of the things I like most about you is you are everyone. You are everyone who has a dream, who has challenges, who has goals, but you have built a system for yourself. Sometimes it works, sometimes you recalibrate it, sometimes you fail, but you've built a system to become a prolific producer. Like no one I've ever met, you take nothing and you turn it into something. We're going to talk about it in the context of your new release, All It Takes is a Goal. Before we go there, John, will you rewind a couple of decades and start with the um, snow cone shop or the shack outside of the Walmart <laughs> and walk us through how you became such an influential thought leader? Yeah, so the, you're talking about the freshman year of college where I worked at a shave ice cart out in front of Walmart. Not inside. It was an unaffiliated cart that a man named Kevin had just wheeled close to the door. And it was kind of a funny story I used to tell about. I was a mess in college. I didn't accomplish anything in college. Um, I did not have a plan, did not have goals, and look back on college and go, wow, I really regret that. And that's what kicked off this book. 
I was touring college with my oldest daughter, and my wife said, wasn't college amazing? I said, no, it was a train wreck. And I started to think, okay, I didn't make the best use of that potential. What can I do going forward? And do other people feel like they have potential to tap into? And that's what started this project. We did a, a survey with 3,000 people, and 96% of people said that they were not living up to their full potential. So I really felt like, wow, this is a subject I can work on for years and really create something that's helpful. And that's, that's what kicked it off, was that real experience of regret on a college campus and deciding to look forward instead of get stuck in that four-year kind of mistake, if you will. John, I want to spend most of our time talking about this new book because who doesn't need a practical book on how to set and achieve goals in their life? But first, you're a pretty prolific writer. I'd like for all those millions of people watching us today and listening who have a book in them but don't exactly know how to get it out of them, will you talk a bit about not just your writing process but how you decide? Like how did you move from the hit of soundtracks to the next book, All It Takes is a Goal? What's your process of of winnowing passions that you also think will resonate with the readers? Yeah, I have a pretty specific Venn diagram I use. Number one, I need to be personally connected to the content. So I need to have a heartfelt connection to the content because we've all read leadership books where we could tell it was just a topic to the author and they weren't into it. And it's the book feels, the book feels 2D, not 3D. So first, I need a personal connection. Second thing, I look for a need. Do other people need this? Am I hearing about it at the neighborhood pool, this topic? And when I talk to clients, are they talking about it? Am I seeing it online? Is there a real need? And then the third thing I look for is, is there a spot for me in the marketplace? Is there a way for me to fit into this topic as it's being discussed um, you know, in the marketplace? So with, you know, I, for instance, the book Finish. I wrote this book called Finish, and I was not good at finishing projects. I had a lot of unfinished projects, so I had a personal connection. Then I started to talk to people, and they'd say, John, I read your book Start. No offense. I've never had a problem starting projects. I can register 50 URLs on GoDaddy right now. How do I finish? And then I went to Amazon and Googled the word Finish, and the only thing that came up was dishwasher detergent because we as Americans, and, and even in a broader sense of the world, over-focus on the start and under-focus on the finish. So then I had my Venn diagram. So that's what I look for in every idea. I explore a ton of ideas, but I come down to, okay, do I have a deep personal connection? Is there a real need? And is there a spot for me in the marketplace? Those are the three things I look for. John, you can tell by the set behind me, I'm pretty passionate about books and read a lot myself. I'll tell you, uh, Soundtracks was a runaway bestseller. And Finish is my favorite book you've written next to this new one now because it had a profound impact on me. And literally, it was one phrase in the entire book. I'll finish this and we'll get to your new book. You actually kind of gave us a rhetorical challenge in Finish to walk around your house and ask yourself, how many unfinished chapsticks do I have? And I did that with three sons and a wife living in Salt Lake City. We used a few, and I think I had close to 48. I put them in a jar, took a picture, posted online, and sold a couple thousand books for you. But it was that metaphor of how many unfinished, like barely used chapsticks. It's a pervasive issue in our lives. Is it not setting goals, starting, and finishing? I see a theme in all of your work. Let's talk about all it takes is a goal. I want to start with this idea of a vision wall. You opened the book talking about the power of a vision wall. Uh, Unpack that for our listeners and viewers. Yeah, so the problem is most people, when they say they want to change their life, they want to do a goal, the first question they ask is, well, what do I want to do with my life? What's my vision? What's my 10-year plan? What's my why? And there are these very big questions that personally paralyze me and paralyze a lot of other people. 
it's this huge wall of vision that kind of tells you until you know exactly where you're going, you can't get started. We see this with entrepreneurs. Let's just talk to the entrepreneur leaders for a second. In entrepreneurship right now, it's very popular to go, you have to know your micro niche. You know, niche to get rich. You got to know your micro niche, which is like saying to someone who's never tasted food, you've never tasted food, what's your favorite type of food? And you'd go, well, I've never, I've never tasted it. I've never even experienced a single ingredient. Okay, okay, but is it sushi? Is it Mexican? Is it Italian? So often we ask these massive questions that we can't answer. And so for me, I needed to find a, a way around that vision wall. Because I still, at 47, if somebody said, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? I'd say, I'm, I'm figuring that out. I don't have it all figured out. But there's so many people that as they start a new goal, Instead of just trying to lose a couple pounds or instead of trying to write a book, they come up with, they think they have to come up with this massive, massive true north and they never actually get started. John, another, uh, your books are superb. If people are not subscribing to everything you write and buying what you write, they're missing out because you have this uncanny ability to write really precise about where people are in their lives, are in their lives, where you are in your life. You talked about how at 47, you're just now kind of coming into your own. I think I'm 55, yeah. just turned 55 a few weeks ago. I actually think just now I'm kind of coming into my full about what are my talents and my, my confidence is matching my competence. And I'm feeling, um, you know, I, I lived most of my 20s and 30s quite arrogant and <laughs> <In> my 40s <laughs> building confidence and now understanding my competence you write in your book about really kind of understanding your past. You call it conquer your future by categorizing your past. And you have like a four-step process, experience, accomplishment, relationship, and object. And you're quite vulnerable about how you categorize those things in your own life and the percentage that you shared of them and where you really get your motivation and reward. Would you take some time and talk about that and what those categories were and why that's so instructive to helping you find and conquer goals. Yeah, so when I decided I wanted to tap into my potential, I needed a plan, I needed some steps. And so I started working on that. And in the Augusta airport, I wrote best moments on top of a piece of paper. And I started to list out my best moments because I couldn't dream 20 years ahead in the future. That felt so paralyzing to me. And so I decided to look back. And so I just started to give myself permission to list things that really lit me up. Big things, small things, small things like my favorite restaurant or when my daughter comes home from high school and I see the headlights in the, in the driveway because it means she's safe or hitting the New York Times bestsellers list. Just all these different items. And I ended up writing more than 170 things. And when I wrote that down, one, it taught me gratitude. Everybody always says, oh, yes, you should be grateful. But I always go, well, how? And this taught me gratitude because I was able to remember things that I had forgotten that were really special. Two, it taught me self-awareness. When you ask your head and your heart to Google things from your past that are helpful and they're joyful to you, you automatically start looking for them in your present. And three, it gave me a way forward because when I did this exercise and then I took hundreds of people through it because that's always my process. I try it in my life. I share it with hundreds and hundreds of people. I would tell somebody, hey, do 30, and they would come up with 300. And what happens is you automatically go, I want more of that. I want more of that in my life. And what's fun about it, Scott, is it's counterintuitive. We as a culture are addicted to sadness and trauma right now. Like that's what we talk about the most. For every 100 scientific papers written on sadness, there's only one written on happiness, only one written on joy, as if you can't learn anything from joy. Mm. And so this gave me this roadmap to go, these are the things that 
light me up, that give me the greatest joy, that feel most satisfying, that give me a sense of purpose? How do I add more of these to my life? And then I categorize them because 170 is a pretty big list. And I realized that they all fit into one of four categories. And you just mentioned them, relationship, accomplishment, um, experience, and object. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. So you live in um, Utah. You live in Salt Lake. It's a beautiful place to hike. If you go on a hike by yourself and you love it, that's an experience moment. If you go on a hike with a friend who's going through a divorce and you're able to encourage them, that is a relationship moment. If you hike it faster than you've ever hiked it before, that's an accomplishment moment. And if you grabbed a rock from the top because you wanted to remind yourself you can do hard things, that's an object moment. So what you do is you start to really, in the easiest way possible, label your list, and it teaches you about yourself because you'll notice things like, wow, 60% of my list was relationship-focused, and I've stopped making time for relationships. No wonder I feel stuck in my career. No wonder I feel stuck in my leadership. Or, wow, 60% of my list was relationship moments, and I'm now in a leadership position where I don't interact with a lot of people. No wonder I'm frustrated at work. And it becomes this really fun, almost skeleton key to your life that allows you to lean forward. So it became this really simple life plan for me. And then again, I tested it with hundreds and hundreds of people. And there are always these eureka moments where people would say, I forgot how much I love accomplishment. And sometimes they'd say, you know, in my family growing up, accomplishment was shameful. Like we were told not, you know, accomplishment, you're going to be greedy. You shouldn't put the focus on yourself. Like success doesn't matter. And I realized, wow, I've got a lot of accomplishment moments that matter to me. Maybe it's okay that I'm wired for accomplishment. And so it became this fun kind of roadmap to the future. John, keep going on this. In this section, I found it riveting because I learned a lot about you, but I also related to you. Talk about the aspect of speaking on stage versus perhaps being on a panel. Oh, yeah, yeah. So for me, um, I realized through this process, I'm way more introverted than I knew. Um, sometimes that confuses people because I'm a keynote speaker, but a keynote speech is very, very introverted in the sense that there's one mic, I'm in control of that, it's not a conversation, it's me sharing ideas, where a panel is extroverted. A panel is us all interacting, that's an extroverted idea. So like a 15 minute panel is harder to me than a 90 minute keynote. And so that was another one of those where or even, you know, Scott, one of the things, speaking of Salt Lake, my favorite place to ski is out there at Snowbird. The ones I listed, the ideas were about me skiing alone by myself. And I realized, wait a second, I think I like introverted ideas more than I knew. And so that, that you know, whether it was the keynote or skiing, there was a level of introversion that surprised me in my list. I, I kind of say, like, it reminds me of those old posters you used to stare at, and if you stared at them long enough, like a unicorn with a cat on a sailboat would pop out of the poster. That's what I found in this list. It really revealed things I care about that I didn't understand I really cared about. By the way, John, all the pansy skiers go to the groomed runs at Snowboard. The real skiers go up to Deer Valley where the rugged rocks are, so keep <laughs> oh, yeah, that in mind. Yeah. I said I'd ski with you. You said you'd take two runs and then hit an Adirondack chair, if I remember. That's almost a direct... Uh, a direct uh, Scott quote. Sitting outside the Vuv Klukuko hut, drinking some champagne. Uh, John, unpack the story about the poster of the car and ripping it up. Yeah, so I thought that I would be motivated um, by a fancy car. I've always loved Porsches. Since I was a little kid, there was a dealership near our house. They sound like dragons to me. Like, just always thought, okay, that'll motivate me to become 
successful. And so I bought a poster of a 911. It was a turbo and I was going to cut it up in little pieces. And every time I accomplished some financial goal, I'd rebuild it. And the poster is still in the tube. I never did anything with it. And so when I realized on my list, the smallest category of my best moments are objects. Objects don't really fire me up. Accomplishment, I love accomplishment. I love succeeding at things. I love seeing books stack up that I've written. I love getting one from Romania, and it's the Romanian version, and, and knowing that I helped impact somebody's life in a country I've never been to that I might never meet. So accomplishment fires me up, but objects don't. And so what happens is every leader on this, on listening to this has had this experience where they've tried to motivate somebody with the wrong form of motivation, and it's miserable. So for instance, you have some employee that you're working with, and they need to fix some things, and you have kind of the, the sit-down meeting, the serious meeting, say, hey, if you don't get these things together, like we're going to have to go in a different direction. It's not going to work out well. If they're not consequence motivated or accomplishment motivated, it goes right over their head. They don't even notice what you've said. Even on the day they've been fired, they're like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Where other people, if they're not object focused and you give them objects as rewards, they don't care. I worked with a woman at AutoTrader. We were given iPod shuffles, the little ones that were square. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. And she said, ugh, I hate the color. And I thought, wow, she's so entitled. But then what I realized was she wasn't entitled. She wasn't object motivated. So she could have been given 100 different iPods. It didn't matter because that wasn't what she valued. So as a leader, part of your job is understanding what do my people value and how do I use that to motivate them to be the best version of themselves. Or, you know, it's also optional that she was object motivated and, uh, and objects were so important to her, she just wanted a different color. You never know, right? I mean, I'm thinking about- Well, I mean, it was orange, so maybe I can't, maybe uh, I can't criticize. Maybe she was a Samsung person. Maybe, maybe it's completely different. She's just huge into gap. Maybe she has a Google Pixel. That's possible. I'm still stuck on the fact that you're the David Hasselhoff of Romania. Who knew? Okay. I'm gigantic in Romania. I hear it, bro. Like, I can't walk the streets in Romania. <laughs> That's like me in America. Let's talk about navigating three performance zones. You talk a lot about goal setting and the creation of goals, but this I found actually pretty, pretty riveting. Three performance zones. The comfort zone, the potential zone, and the chaos zone. John, take your time on this one. Yeah, so what I found was high-performing people don't automatically turn into high-achieving. We've all met people that are capable of a lot but they don't string it together into sustainable success. And what I realized was that it's because high performers tend to bounce between three different zones. So the comfort zone, everybody knows that zone. It's, it's easy, there's not a lot of goals, you're stuck. But the one we don't talk about nearly enough is the opposite of that, the other side of the spectrum, which is the chaos zone. So what happens is a leader will go, I'm stuck, I'm in a rut. Then they'll get inspired. They'll go to a conference, they'll read a book, like they'll hear an Eminem song and be like, Mom, spaghetti, I'm doing it, I'm changing my life. And they'll ricochet all the way over into the chaos zone and try to do 52 new goals all at once. They'll go, I'm going to get into yoga. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to date my spouse differently. I'm going to connect with my kids. I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to read 11 books. And they get into this chaos zone and accomplish none of it because it's impossible. And then they ricochet back to the comfort zone. That's why we have the phrase yo-yo diet. Like a yo-yo diet is ricocheting back and forth between the comfort zone and the chaos zone. And in the middle of those two is the potential zone. 
So it's kind of like the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's, it's just right. It's not a million goals. It's not zero goals. It's the right amount of goals worked on them in the right way where you actually get to change your life. And again, the comfort zone gets all the press. Like we talk about it constantly and I've heard a million people talk about it, but I don't think we spend enough time talking about the chaos zone, which in my opinion is where a lot of high performers lose their ability to have sustainable success. Sean, you're a natural optimist. You like, uh, you, you are a self-confessed gold nerd. You like to track how many, everything you do. It's actually riotous in the book, listening to part of your lifestyle. You know, I hadn't really thought about this until you mentioned it earlier in our interview about the number of papers dedicated to trauma and pain versus happiness and yes. joy. It's very true that, that it seems like the most popular topic in America right now is trauma. And I've had many friends that want to process my trauma, and I'm thinking, you know, I don't think I have any trauma. I mean, I've never been kidnapped. I've not been sexually assaulted. I haven't had a bankruptcy. I haven't survived an earthquake. I haven't lost my home. My parents didn't beat me. And I have so many uh, friends that are either mental health therapists or psychiatrists or self-described processors of pain, and they want to come back to, no, no, but Scott, you do have traumas. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think so. I've seen trauma. It was in Turkey six months ago where people lost their lives There was a man holding his dead relative's hand outside the rubble. That's trauma. Without diminishing people's real trauma, do you think society has swung its pendulum to like negativity and pain and grief as opposed to opportunity and joy and gratitude? Well, the first thing I'd say is I'm not a naturally optimistic person. I'm actually incredibly pessimistic, cynical, jaded. I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm sarcastic. But I just, I've done the ROI on positivity and negativity. And the ROI, the return on investment of positivity is so much greater than negativity. Like I've run the numbers, like I feel better, I'm kinder to people, I perform better. Like positivity is the path. So I work really hard to have a positive outlook. And I do a lot of things that help me support that. So the thing I'd say is I think a lot of people that will tell me about negativity or about things they're frustrated about or things they're having a hard time with, when I'll say, well, what have you done to push back against that? They haven't done some things. So it's kind of like if somebody didn't eat all day and then at the end of the day said, John, it's weird, I'm, I'm hungry. Like, I don't know why I'm hungry. I'd say it's not, it's not weird. You didn't eat all day. So it's the same to me with a lot of the things we feed ourselves when it comes to positivity or negativity. So I'm already right now like mentally getting ready for the election. The presidential election next year will not shock me or surprise me. Like I don't have to guess if that'll be a negative dumpster fire experience. So I'm already battening the hatches to go, okay, what will I do so that I don't get stuck in that negative loop of that? Mm. Like how do I prepare? What do I do? So for me, it becomes an an activity. Like it's become something where I can say, okay, I'm not gonna starve my doubts. I'm gonna drown my doubts. Like I'm going to listen to things that are positive. I'm gonna surround myself with positive people. I'm I'm gonna go to counseling. I go to a counselor. Like I process, it's not that I don't have pain or hardships or challenges. I do and there's real ones out there, of course, but I'm going to work on those and I'm going to you know, do my best to push back against those versus saying, okay, the world is broken, everything's falling apart, so therefore I have to sit in that spot. John, next to your wife and your two daughters, what are the three best decisions you've made in your entire life? Um, number one, to write books. 
to I, it's been a joy these last 10 or 12 years. Um, I've really enjoyed writing books. Um, number two, to be in honest, vulnerable relationships with other men. Like that's been gigantic for me, having real friendship. I find that most men that are in their 40s and 50s don't have friends. And that's a that's a really challenging, dangerous, lonely place to be. So opening myself up to real friendship, I would say, um, second decision. And then um, probably third decision would be going to counseling, like learning some tools. Um, I feel I've loved my 40s more than my 30s. And I think my 50s are going to be a lot of fun, too, because I've, I've learned tools that are helping me navigate the challenges, the highs, the lows. And so, yeah, those three things. John, in the book, you dedicate a phenomenal chapter to the concept of fuel, really understanding what fuels you. You divide it into four categories. With you, everything is four. Why is that? What's going on with that? What's the four thing? Uh, well, I think it's either three or four. I don't, I don't think six is easy. When somebody says, you know, I, I think sometimes um, we have massive lists. And my thing, Scott, is I love taking big, complicated things and simplifying them so that I can actually use them. One of the things I use when I write my books is this question, what do I do with that on a Tuesday? But, but what do I do with that on a Tuesday? So for me, I don't like when I read a book that goes, hey, here's some high-level ideas. Good luck. You figure it out. I want to know, what do I do with that in the real world? Like, what do I, and I'm, I'm not opposed to the number 13. In fact, if you've got 13 roles to making a true impact, 13's a fine number. I'm okay with the number 13. I'm just a three and four guy. That's, that's how I was raised. Well, I know a guy that wrote seven, and he sold about 60 million copies of that book. So I yeah, figured if I yeah. doubled that almost less one, I'd sell 120 million. Yeah, yeah he's um, done well. He's I'll, done well. I'll, I'll, I'll call you when my book hits that 120 million range. Okay, let's talk about fuel. Four yeah. potential fuel zones. Impact, craft, community, and stories. Let's end on this. Let's talk about, because I think you know, fuel is paramount when you hit the messy middle, when you hit that middle of the bell curve on your... On your, on your goals. Walk us through each of the four of these. Impact, craft, yeah. community, and stories. Well, part of it for me, Scott, came from I was around a lot of high-performing people that had anger as their fuel. And I would watch I beg your up. pardon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like your staff. I had a meeting with your staff prior to this. This is kind of an intervention this moment. Um, but I just saw a lot of successful people that were wildly unhappy. And they were just miserable. They had everything. And the reason why is they had used the wrong things as fuel. They mm. had used proving people wrong as fuel. Mm. They had used anger as fuel. They had used insecurity as mm. fuel. They had used growing up with a poor childhood as fuel. Like all these things that in, like ultimately emptied them out versus filling them up. And so I started to really study what are some sustainable high-performing fuels that still get you there, but get you there in a way that's sustainable and actually fills you up. So impact um, for me is okay, the work I create is impacting other people, which is a form of accomplishment. It's a form of you saying, okay, the work I do matters to other people. I can see the impact I'm making. Craft is about you saying, I'm getting better at this thing. So writing for me is a craft. But there's people that would say, you know what? I've talked to stay-at-home moms that would say, I time myself to see how fast I can put away the laundry. Like that's a, that's a thing that motivates me. It's like, it's become a craft for them. Um, community is about relationships. I do this because of the people that I get to interact with. I do that, you know, I wouldn't do this alone. I do this because there's people. And then story is, um, 
that's really related to object. Everybody that had a best moments list that had objects on them, none of them were just because. Nobody would say, oh, I put that on there just because. They would always tell a story about the object. So the story might be, there was a woman who, who told me she wanted to buy a Louis Vuitton purse because when she was growing up as a kid, she didn't have a lot of money and decided someday when I'm successful, I'm going to go to France and I'm going to buy my own Louis Vuitton purse. Well, what's funny about that is her husband, when they were in Paris, tried to buy it for her and she said, no, 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 no. This has been 15 years and like, I'm buying this purse. I'm walking in that store. So that's what story is. Okay, what is this object? What kind of story does it tell? And I think once you plug into that, it's a lot more fun. So craft is one of the ones that I really enjoy. Like I want to craft a speech a certain way. I care about the sentences. I care about the joke. I remember some, I heard Earl Nightingale say the other day that call your, your problems projects. And I wrote that down because mm. I love the craft of that idea versus going call them opportunities. I hate when people say, call your problem opportunities. That's too big of a mental gap for me. Oh, I got punched in the face. What an opportunity to meet a doctor. Like I don't, that's Pollyanna. I, but if I can call a problem a project, I can work on a project. I like that. So I'm a craft guy myself. Sean, in our last minutes here, what have you learned about the construction of goals, the measurement of goals that might send our listeners and viewers off with the, the skills to go turn a problem into a project? Think about it this way. So here's a really simple metaphor. Think about a goal ladder. If I gave you a ladder and it had two rungs, one at the very bottom and one at the very top, and it was a 12-foot tall ladder, and I said, Scott, you got to get to the top of that ladder that would be a useless ladder because you'd have to try to jump and grab the top rung and pull yourself up, but it's two feet above a basketball rim. Like, no offense, I, I've met you. I don't know how your ups are, but you're not, you're not grabbing a 12-foot tall ladder. But if instead I said to you, hey, here's a ladder. It's got 20 rungs on it. They're six inches apart. Can you climb to the top of that? You'd say, of course. So now what most people do is they go, I want to write a book. I want to start a business. I want to run a marathon. And that's a top rung. That's a big goal. And then at the bottom, they have one step and they don't have any rungs in between it. And so they don't know how to climb the goal ladder. So what I teach, for instance, if you want to write a book, 83% of Americans, according to New York Times, want to write a book. Like if you only have one rung that says finish the book, you fail all year. If I only have one rung that says finish the book, every year that I work on a book, every day feels like a failure because I didn't finish the book until the very end of the year but instead I have small rungs along the way. So yesterday I wrote 500 words and that was a rung and I, I succeeded at today. One of, my, one of my book goals is to do this podcast. That's another rung. So I'm climbing the ladder and then at the end of the year, I look up and I have another book. You, you produce as many books as I do. Like you and I are both enjoy being writers that produce a lot of books. And you know, just like I do, that there's a process and it's a ladder and you climb and you do small things. It's not magic. It's really not, but you have to be focused on climbing those steps. And so that's what I would say if somebody's listening to this and says, I want to accomplish some goals, make sure your goal ladder has a lot of rungs. John, you and I share the same publisher in Baker Books due to your abundance and generosity to that introduction. I happen to know you have a multi-volume book deal with Baker Books. Will you share yeah. with us what is next on the horizon for you? Yeah, so I'm turning a new book um, in a couple weeks, which is a teen version of this book. So after Soundtracks came out, so many parents came up to me and said, hey, do you have a version for teenagers? Because if I could have learned how to change my mindset as a teenager, 
it would have changed the whole arc of my life. And you talk about a generation that needs to be taught how to change their mindset. In Nashville, the wait for a counselor for a teenager is four to six months long. So a teenager finally gets brave enough to go talk about their feelings, whatever, with a counselor, and they go, cool, we'll see you in six months. So we wrote a teen version of Soundtracks, and then the next book is going to be a teen version of this book. Um, and then the book after that is going to probably be about bravery. I'm really curious about can bravery be a skill or are people born with it? And it's, it's definitely going to be, it's a skill. So how do you actually build that? John Acuff, you are a class act and a good friend. Your most recent release out today is called All It Takes is a Goal. Great cover, by the way. Just so simple and, oh, and, and uh, relatable, right? Everyone's got this sitting on their desk somewhere, and it's really helpful to make, uh, make that connection. Three-step plan to ditch your regret and tap into your massive potential. You deserve all of your success. Congrats. We'll see you back here next year for the conversation around uh, whatever comes out from Baker Books then. Thank you, John. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs> <laughs>